0: Take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of First Corinthians, First Corinthians, Chapter Four. The air conditioner is a lot stronger up here than I anticipated. (laughs) Grace to you and peace from God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're continuing our study today of 1 Corinthians, and the subject of our text of Scripture relates to that of how we are to regard our leaders. To begin, I I believe it'd be helpful to remind us of the context of this letter and to highlight some of the important themes that Paul has already introduced in the verses leading up to where we'll be focusing today. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul makes an appeal to the believers at the church in Corinth that they all agree, that they be united in the same mind and judgment, and that there be no divisions among them. Paul has received a report that there are divisions among the church that are characteristic of human wisdom and really human foolishness. These divisions are so pervasive that they have caused quarreling among the believers, causing them to act merely as human, as infants who have not matured in the way of Christ. As the letter progresses then, we learn that these divisions are rooted in a wrong view, in a wrong regard for their leaders. In chapter one and verse 12, Paul outlines the attitude and view that the Corinthian believers had applied towards their leaders. And they claim things such as, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Paul immediately rebukes this attitude that they've adopted towards their leaders by asking them some pointed questions. He asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now the answers to these questions are simple and clear. No, Christ is not divided. No, Paul was not crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And no, baptism is not done in the name of Paul. These foolish associations with the leaders of their church and the divisions that they are causing in the life of the local church are likened by Paul to that of proclaiming a different message of crucifixion and a different baptism. It's serious. This further illustrates that at the heart of this rebuke is a wrong view and a wrong regard of their leaders. Paul then goes on to emphasize the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amid a cultural context that seeks eloquent human wisdom, Paul declares to the Corinthians true wisdom, a wisdom that transcends all human wisdom and human knowledge. This is the main theme in the first few verses or sorry, the first few chapters of Corinthians. There's a dynamic contrast between what people in the first century considered wisdom and what God considers wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 22, we read that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. This, brother and sister, is true wisdom. This message, this gospel, this true event in human history, the glorious truth of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only true wisdom by which any man or woman can be saved. The lost man considers this message foolish, They consider it offensive, lacking in logical superiority and sophistication. But to the one who is called, this message is a message full of wisdom and power. Paul has been called to preach this foolish message to the Jew and Gentile alike. Furthermore, Paul writes in chapter 1 of verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So if there's any boasting then, there's any grounds of confidence or assurance, it's simply and exclusively to be found in Jesus Christ. The only boast of the Christian is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only boast, there's no room for confidence in one's own life, one's own ability to make himself right before God, or even our association with other men. I follow this preacher. I follow this theologian. There's no room for boasting or assurance in those things. The latter point is a problem that Paul addresses in the life of the Corinthian church. After contrasting the difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom, and stressing the importance of living in light, of true spiritual wisdom, Paul admonishes them, even by telling them that he could not address them as spiritual people, but instead as people of the flesh. Infants in Christ. If you look at chapter 3, verse 3, it's probably really close to where you are now in your Bible. Paul writes for, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So Paul here connects this problem of jealousy and strife with their wrong regard of their leaders in the next verse. The names of these men come up again. When one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos are you not being merely human? To put it another way, when they make these claims, when they wrongly regard their leaders and boast pridefully in following them, they are being merely human. So what is the alternative? How are we to regard Christian leaders in a way that is spiritual and that is in accordance with with the wisdom of God? So this brings us to the subject of today's verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. The question that Paul sets out to answer then is how are we to regard our church leaders? How are the Corinthians and therefore we to regard those whom God has given to us in leading the church in the ministry of the gospel? Paul first introduces the answer to this question even in chapter 3 in verse 5 where Paul writes what then is Apollos what is Paul he doesn't say who are they he says what are they he answers it servants through whom you believed as a lord assigned to each Paul then goes on to elaborate and reiterate this matter in chapter 4 which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning would you please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word? And we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they, are, that they be found faithful Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we bow ourselves before you today, and we acknowledge that your word is truth, that your words are wisdom, that what you have spoken is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for training in all righteousness. Would you help us now, Lord, to hear your word, to understand it by your spirit with the mind of Christ and to apply it to our lives in a way that will produce fruit that comes from your spirit and that glorifies your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. How are we to view our leaders? This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This verse serves as a conclusion to the previous message where Paul has called the believers in the church to regard themselves as foolish by worldly standards, not to consider themselves wise by the standards of that day and to abandon their insistence on human ways. Paul calls them to no longer boast in men and to realize that they have all things in Christ, if you'll recall that from last week's sermon, and that they belong to Christ so now that he's addressed them and how they are to view themselves, he now addresses how they, to, they are to regard their leaders. In writing, this is how one should regard us. Maybe that's not a familiar term for you. This simply means this is how one should think of us, how one should consider us. Now, the us in the verse refers back to chapter 3, verse 22, and it includes Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, and by extension, all Christian ministers and leaders. And so all people then are called to consider or regard their Christian leaders as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. What is a servant? What is a servant? uh, Are they highly esteemed in our culture, in our society? There's a lot of things that come to mind um, when we think of the word servant. And I think what's most important is to understand what Paul meant when he chose to call ministers of Christ servants. The meaning of this word in the original language literally refers to an under rower, a galley slave. I want you to envision here a person who has been sentenced to a harsh punishment of serving as a slave on a ship that is primarily propelled by oars. These slaves were the lowest of the low of men who had no significance or status in society and lived only to be told what to do by their master. Can you envision that for one moment? Being underneath a ship, being told to row, Oftentimes in the context of warfare, and that is your whole purpose for existing, taking orders as a slave. Paul describes the ministry of Christ this way. Later on, the word takes on the meaning in general of someone who is a subordinate, one who is under the authority of another. A Christian leader then has no authority or significance in and of themselves. He is a subordinate to whom? To the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one who has received orders from his Lord and Master, and he is to simply carry out those orders. The servant's duty is to carry out what Jesus Christ has commanded. Now, Paul here, I believe, is reiterating and affirming the example and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, After learning that the disciples had been arguing about which one among them is the greatest. The disciples of Jesus Christ, those whom God had graciously chosen to walk with Christ in his ministry and be discipled by him, are arguing which one of us is the greatest. Just another example of how prone we are to have a wrong view of ourselves and a wrong view of leaders. So what does Jesus say to them? In Mark chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus calls to them and says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. So, although this is directed to his disciples, we can see here that this expectation of being a servant applies to all who follow Christ, not just to leaders. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus tells us that he himself came not to be served but to serve. Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even though the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in giving his life as a ransom for many, the Lord Jesus demonstrated the very heart of servanthood. The Lord Jesus lived his life as one who submitted his own will to the will of the father. His food, his nourishment was to do the will of God, to carry out the father's plan. And what was that plan? It was the plan of redemption. Jesus was a supreme and perfect example of a servant who submitted himself by way of obedience. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, the word of God says, Let each one of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So then the believer has Christ and the minister has Christ himself as the supreme example of being a servant. And he also has Christ as his Lord. So what are some of the implications then of a Christian minister being regarded as a servant of Christ? What are some of the implications of a minister being regarded as a slave of Christ? First, a servant of Christ will place the will of Christ as a supreme and ruling authority of his life. A servant of Christ will place the will of Christ as a supreme and ruling authority of his own life. The minister is not to view his own desires, his own opinions, or even the desires and opinions of his own congregation as a driving force behind his service. The Christian minister is to view his service not as even a free man, but as a bondservant and a slave of the Lord Jesus. A servant of Christ takes great care to find out the will of Christ and to carry out his responsibilities in obedience and honor as his first concern. Secondly, the minister is to know the will of Christ as it is recorded in the word of Christ. The minister is to know the will of Christ as it is recorded in the word of Christ. A servant of Christ, as a servant of Christ, it's imperative that the servant know his marching orders. Servants of Christ must be chiefly concerned with the will of God as it is found in the word of God. So this then begins our consideration of how we regard Christian leaders. This is how the Lord desires for us to regard those who are Christian leaders as servants of Christ, as slaves of Christ, as those who have received marching orders from their master to deliver out their calling. Viewing them as bondservants and as slaves, I believe, can help us withstand the temptation then to want to unwisely boast in men. Who are we to boast in men who are merely slaves and those who are merely servants who have been giving marching orders? There's foolishness in that. And so we're called not to boast in men. Furthermore, servants of Christ are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. stewards of the mysteries of God. They are tasked with the stewardship of the mysteries of Christ. A steward is literally a house manager or a chief household slave. A steward is one who has been tasked with the responsibility of managing a house, land, vineyards, crops, finances, food, and so on. They are to dispense the resources that the master of the house has provided for them, and they are to do it with wisdom. They are to prove that they are trustworthy managers of what they have been entrusted with. In this context, then, the steward of Christ has been entrusted with the gospel of Christ, the message of the gospel. The steward is to dispense the revelation of God, which at one point was a mystery, unknown, and undiscoverable by human reason alone, but has now been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As a steward of the mysteries of God, a minister is to dispense all of God's revealed word faithfully to the congregation. He is to proclaim it. He is to preach it. He is to herald it. Heralding means proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of Christ. And he is to do this without defiling it and without corrupting it. That which God has provided for the salvation of souls and the sanctification of the saints must not be tampered with, but instead it's to be used in accordance with the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. A steward dispenses that which is profitable. In 1 Timothy chapter chapter 3, no, here we go. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16, the word of the Lord says this, all scripture is breathed out by God, all of it, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is what the servant is a steward of. A misunderstanding of this text and maybe even a a willful disobedience of this text can lead to serious spiritual damage. When Christian leaders do not view themselves as servants of Christ, primarily tasked with dispensing the word of God to the people of God, what often results is congregations that are spiritually anemic. When ministers and Christian leaders decide to view themselves as primarily serving the people and their role to be more of an encourager, you've heard that before, or a motivator, a spiritual coach, you've heard those terms used probably, what ends up happening more often than not is that the word of God is compromised and oftentimes forgotten. And the people instead are fed the opinions and the wisdom of man and not the wisdom of God. You only need to take a few minutes on any social media platform to discover that this is a prevailing problem in our culture, in our world today. There are many who would call themselves Christian leaders, pastors, ministers, who dispense everything but the word of God. Oftentimes, pulpits are filled with men who proclaim their own opinions on every matter, under the sun they've forgotten their commission they've forgotten who Christ has called them to be they've forgotten the source of true spiritual wisdom so by way of warning and encouragement to you fellow brother and sister in Christ I don't think this applies to us here because we sit under the faithful preaching of God's word week by week but in our time away from church in our time away from our gathering be watchful Be awake. Be on guard with what you fill your mind and your heart with. Because there are many who have abandoned the call to be faithful proclaimers of the mysteries of God. And they faithfully proclaim themselves, the wisdom of this world. What is popular today? Be watchful and be awake. Ministers are to dispense the mysteries of God, the revealed word of Christ. It is so important that we take heed of this verse and that we have a proper regard of our leaders and also that our leaders have a proper regard of themselves. They are to regard themselves as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul now declares the chief concern for the stewards of God. The minister is to be faithful. He is to be trustworthy in carrying out his duties as a dispenser of the mysteries of God. The minister of the gospel has been entrusted with the words of the living God. There is a tremendous amount of weight and responsibility in the stewardship of his calling. And he's required by God to be found trustworthy and faithful in carrying out that task. There is no alternative. This is what is required. God does not require eloquence. He does not require creativity. He does not require cultural relevance. He doesn't require coolness. Thank you, Lord. He doesn't require clever marketing campaigns or business acumen. He doesn't require many educational degrees. Those are not the requirement. The requirement is faithfulness. The servant of Christ is to be faithful in his commitment to being an obedient servant of Christ and a faithful dispenser of the word of Christ to the people of Christ. That is what is required. Faithfulness also involves not going beyond what Christ commands. And a commitment to dispensing to the people of God only the truths which God has revealed in his word. It is especially important that they not mix their own speculations or personal opinions in dispensing the word of God. They are to reject any doctrines of human knowledge and human wisdom and only proclaim the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Faithfulness requires obedience. Obedience to the word of Christ. Lastly, on this point, if the minister of God must be found faithful, this indicates then that there will be an evaluation. There will be an evaluation, a judgment, a consideration of his faithfulness to this calling. Now that Paul has offered a correct view of how the Corinthians are to view him and Apollos and by extension their local leaders He now moves to answering maybe a very reasonable next question. Who will evaluate the faithfulness of the servant? Who will conduct the evaluation? Look at uh, verses three and four with me. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul here indicates that he is not concerned with the Corinthian believers judging or evaluating his faithfulness and stewarding the mysteries of God. Now, it's certainly possible that the Corinthians had been doing some level of judging and evaluating It was likely not an evaluation done through the lens of spiritual wisdom. There may have been instances of criticism towards Paul's ministry and his faithfulness in serving Christ, or the opposite may have been true. The Corinthians may very well have judged him and found him to be faithful. The point is not the result of the evaluation and the judgment. But instead, it's to affirm positively that their evaluation and judgment holds no value or merit for Paul. Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Whether it is a judgment and assessment of the believers in Corinth or a trial by a human tribunal or court, Paul is not concerned with those things. I would highlight to you that this is a mark of a spiritually mature leader. He is not concerned with the opinions of others. He's not. He's not concerned with the opinions of others. And we would do well to take heed of his example. Paul goes on to declare. Now he said, I I find it a small thing that you would judge me, that you would evaluate me. And then you might think, well, maybe he's just judging himself then. Maybe he's his own standard. But he goes on to say, no, even he does not judge his own faithfulness. Even if he has not found anything in his own conscience that would accuse him otherwise, In verse 3, he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. We know from other letters of Paul that Paul considers himself to be the chief sinner, right? He understands his position before God. He understands that he was a hater of Christ, that he was a persecutor of Christ, that he had killed those who stood for the name of Christ. So he's not saying that he's not guilty of sin. Instead, he's speaking regarding his faithfulness. His own conscience doesn't accuse him of not being faithful. He believes that he's a faithful servant, but that is not the point. Even so, Paul rightly recognizes that even his own assessment and evaluation is not sufficient or adequate. He says, I am not acquitted. Even though I find nothing against myself, I am not acquitted. The minister's own evaluation is not a good judge. Oftentimes one's own evaluation is seen through rose-colored lenses. Paul rightly recognizes then that it is the Lord who judges me. The Lord is the only righteous judge. He alone knows the deepest recesses of the heart the only impartial, competent, and final judge is the Lord. And when it comes to the evaluation of a minister and his faithfulness as a servant of Jesus Christ and as a steward of the mysteries of God, the judgment of man, the judgment of any human court, and even one's own conscience are inferior measures according to godly wisdom. Therefore, as a minister seeks to be faithful, he is to be reminded of the fact that the one who will evaluate his faithfulness and to the one whom he must give an account is the Lord. The Lord is the one who judges. The servant of Christ does not serve man. He does not serve to receive commendation from the court of human wisdom, but he serves to receive commendation from the only one who can grant true commendation, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's easy to read verses like that and to read in our cultural context. We hear a lot of talk in our culture about judgment. We hear a lot of talk about how we should never judge people. Paul is not driving at some strange extra biblical standard to where we are not to evaluate our obedience before Christ. He's not speaking in other parts of scripture. He calls us to judge those that are within the church. There's no conflict here between what he's saying regarding the judgment of the Corinthian believers and waiting ultimately for the judgment of the Lord. What he he specifically refers to here is that when it comes to faithfulness as being a servant of Christ, a faithful commitment to living as a slave before the Lord and a steward of the mysteries of God. The church's evaluation is worthless. His own evaluation is worthless. Only the evaluation of God carries weight. This next verse provides us an application point. Look at verse five with me. So he he said all these things, Ministers are servants of Christ. They're to steward the mysteries of God. I find it a small thing that I be judged by you. I don't judge myself. I'm not acquitted. The Lord is the one who judges me. Therefore, right? That's a great word. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation, From God. Because it is the Lord who judges the faithfulness of the servant of Christ, the believers in Corinth, and by extension, believers in any local church, they are not to pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. The Lord has appointed a time for his return. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ will return someday. We look forward to his second return and he will accomplish glorious things when he does come back. One of the things that he will do at that time is bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. Both of these things, the things hidden in darkness and the purposes of the heart are things that happen internally in a man. And there are only things that can be examined and revealed by God, who sees all things. Only God knows the sincerity and the motives in the heart of man. And this is the context of our passage. Only God can judge the faithfulness and the motives of the servant of Jesus Christ. God's people, including the minister himself, have no business passing judgment before the time. We see only the outside, the visible. And cannot know what is hidden in the recesses of the soul. Only God can. God will reveal the purposes of the heart. And all things will come to light in the last day. Things of the heart that are seen and unseen or unknown. So it's important to note that what Paul refers to here is the motive of the heart. Charles Hodge comments on the following, in, comments the following in regard to not passing judgment on the matters of the heart. He says this that Paul quote is here speaking of the heart. The church cannot judge the heart, whether a man is sincere or insincere in his profession, whether his experience is genuine or spurious. God can only decide. The church can only judge of what is outward. If any man professes to be holy and yet is immoral, the church is bound to reject him, as Paul clearly teaches in the following chapter. Or if he professes to be a Christian and yet rejects Christianity or any of its essential doctrines, he cannot be received, Titus 3.10. But the counsels of the heart, the searcher of hearts only can judge, close quote. I believe that Paul is driving here at the reality that only God can pronounce a true and righteous judgment. Only God can definitively and righteously answer the question of whether or not a servant of Jesus Christ has been faithful. Only God can reveal insincere motives or motives that are pure. Only God can bring to light evil deeds that have been purposely hidden in darkness. And Paul here entrusts the evaluation of his own faithfulness and his failures to the only wise, true, and good God. So we in turn are to do the same in abstaining from passing judgment on the ministers of God before the time comes. We are here called to abstain from passing judgment on matters of the heart and faithfulness and trust that God will rightly disclose the purposes of the heart and give a true evaluation and judgment of a servant's faithfulness. Paul then goes on to say that after this judgment of the Lord has come to pass, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Because a minister of Christ has been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, he will receive a commendation from God. The commendation will be on the merit of Jesus Christ and the good works of righteousness done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Once our works are tested and the wood and the hay and the straw are burned away and all that remains is the gold and the silver and the precious stones built on the foundation of Christ, there will be a reward. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. We have a guaranteed salvation in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will receive a reward from the only one who is able to give a reward that is truly valuable and everlasting. The love of Christ then compels us to serve the Lord with a sincerity of heart. God will reward his servants according to the motives of their heart, which is why it's supremely important for the minister of God and for the follower of Christ to do all things to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This should be our motive as we set out to serve the Lord and his people. God's glory. Just a a little point of context here. I think it's noteworthy to mention that one of the highest goals of the ancient Greco-Roman world was to receive commendation, was to receive words of commendation and praise. Receiving commendation was viewed as a means to bestow honor and even a place in society. In the context of the Corinthian church, we may infer that the congregation may have been engaging in bestowing extravagant praise on individual teachers and leaders. It's possible that the Corinthians were elevating leaders who may have been more eloquent and well-spoken while putting down those who spoke more plainly about the things of God. I sport. In doing those things, those, that, that those actions are producing divisions and factions that Paul had set out to put an end to. Paul here desires ultimately to drive home the point that the the only praise that matters, the only praise that has eternal significance and weight is the praise that comes from God at the day of judgment, at the day of evaluation. None of the praise and commendation that comes from people or even our own estimation compares to the significance and glory of hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you seek the commendation and praise of man? I will admit to you that I've done that many times in my own life, failed oftentimes at receiving it. But when I received it, it fell short, fell short of gratifying me, encouraging me, fulfilling me. The words of man carry no weight. We are not to live our lives seeking the commendation of man, the affirmation of the human court. What would be said of us by the human court today? Just think about that. Those people, us, they get together to sing. They get together to pray to a God they can't see. They believe that this guy Jesus rose from the dead And they have to live their lives by what he says. We don't like that. They're not afraid to die. They think they're going to live after death. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's in the world. Will they praise us? My hope is that they won't. My hope is that the world will not commend Lighthouse Bible Church for being worldly. For being palatable to today's day and age. The only commendation and praise for the minister and for the follower of Christ is that that comes from the one righteous and true God. As we discussed previously, the Corinthian church was plagued with division, with quarreling, with jealousy, with strife. And Paul both times connected these serious problems with their view of himself, of Apollos and Cephas. The Corinthians had a wrong view of their church leaders, which led to all sorts of disorder in the life of the church. In these verses, Paul has set out to correct how they regard their their leaders. And they are to be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There's no fame in that role, there's no inherent splendor or elevation in that role, there's nothing prestigious dignified, and being a slave and a steward. There's no place to consider oneself as belonging to Paul, belonging to Cephas or Apollos, because the church nor the minister can properly evaluate the value and worth of their ministry, because they cannot accurately pass judgment on the faithfulness of their leaders. It is foolish And not in step with the wisdom of God then to cause divisions in the church by arguing about who is to be the most honored servant. It's foolishness. It's human wisdom. It's all around us. This is not to be typical in the life of the church. Finally, I'd like to conclude today's sermon by offering you some questions for reflection. I'm going to end today's sermon with questions. I hope that they will serve you in applying the truth of God's word today in your own life. And I'm going to direct the first set of three questions to the congregation broadly and the second set of questions to those who are currently leaders in our church or aspiring to be leaders in the work of gospel ministry. So in light of what we've heard today. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that he be found faithful. In light of those things, question number one, has your view of our leaders changed in light of today's passage? Is how you regard your pastor and leaders in line with godly wisdom? I want you to think on that. Question number two. Have you been guilty of falling into the trap of acting in a merely human way and boasting in men instead of the Lord? Then question number three. Instead of passing judgment on matters of personal opinion or human wisdom, would you commit today to pray for your leaders And to ask God to empower them by his spirit to be faithful servants and stewards of the word of God. That one is, I'm really hoping you'll answer positively. Would you pray for our leaders in this church that God would empower them by his spirit to be faithful servants and stewards of the word of God. So those are questions for the generation broadly, for everyone, congregation broadly. Now, for those in leadership and for those aspiring to be leaders, for those currently serving as servants of Christ and leaders in the church and stewards of the mysteries of God, and for those of you who are aspiring to do so, question number one, are you living as a servant and steward of Christ? Are you living as a servant or a slave and a steward of Christ? Are you carrying out your ministry today as a slave seeking only to please Christ? Question number two, are you being faithful to regularly study and meditate on God's word? And are you trusting in the spirit of God to empower you to be a faithful dispenser of God's word to God's people? Are you regularly studying and meditating on God's word? We answer that honestly, we probably will admit we need improvement. Question number three Are you seeking the commendation of man or of God in your service? Whose commendation are you seeking? Would you pray with me today, church?